Welcome to the Pikes Peak Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Well, this is the last Sunday of 2014, and it's been a, been a long week in some ways. It seems like we've never left this room, has it? Um, this will be the, the I'll have 10, 10 sermons in eight days. But we're glad that you're here and ending 2014. I really was looking forward to today because I think it's a great day to do a little bit of a checkup on our own walk with the Lord, how we relate to Him. Some of you may be um, guests from Christmas Eve. You've come back to, to visit and check things out. If, if you're one of those, I'm so glad that you're here. Today's a good day to be here. You know, there was a concept I learned back in high school that revolutionized my whole life. I'd grown up going to church. I had done Christmas Eve, done Sunday school. But there was a phrase that was totally foreign to me, and I didn't really understand what it meant at first, but someone said that you could have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I thought, what in the world is that? I know about church. I know about the Bible. I I know something about Jesus, but what in the world is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? But over the years, I've grown um, to understand what that really means. And more importantly, I've grown to experience the reality of it. And I don't know where you are in relationship to Jesus Christ, but That's my goal today, that you understand that Jesus wants to have a growing relationship with you. Jesus wants to have a relationship that begins here on earth and continues on through the rest of eternity. And see, many times we look at our lives as uh, religious lives as Christianity being one of a smorgasbord of various options. That people have all these different religious ideas out there, and they're all very similar. They're just one of, a, you can just kind of pick and choose which one suits you best. They all have kind of a higher power, and they all have a sacred book in which you look to to get wisdom and, and for understanding. And they all have groups of people of like-minded thinking that come together, and whether it's a worship service or studies or gatherings, they come together. And, and so you look at Christianity as one of the, the options on the table, and you go, well, my friends do this, and the people on the other side of the globe do this, but the, the, this is my option. But there's a, there's a danger in looking at Christianity like that. And the danger is it can become very impersonal. It can become something that simply is handed down to you, maybe through your parents or grandparents. And not that your parents or grandparents are, are bad or that they're wrong necessarily, but what lacks sometimes is that personal connection and ownership of it. We do it simply because that's what we do. And we don't really know why we do it. And many times you don't really even know what we believe It's just that was what was handed down to me. And so we kind of go through sometimes mindless motions just to perpetuate a set of practices. But to be honest, there's very little personal value in it. It's nothing that we say drives our life. It's not the kind of thing that we say I live passionately for. It's more like a hobby or a a civic organization. I'm part of the Kiwanis or the Lions Club and I've got church. And, you know, that's just one of the things of my life. But when I look at Scripture... God wants to be the center of our lives. It's like the the center uh, hub from which all the spokes of life go out. And Jesus wants to have that kind of a growing relationship with you. Now, I want to challenge you today to ask yourself, where am I in my relationship with Jesus Christ? And where do I need to go in the next year or years to come? And I would hope that at the end of today, this would be a great time to evaluate our own relationship with Jesus and make some decisions so that going into 2015, I would truly grow in my relationship with Jesus. It would not be stagnant. It would not be flatlined. It would not go in, in reverse. But I actually would move forward because it is something that grows. And it grows because of choices we make. And so the first choice we make is simply to pray that God would open our eyes, open our ears to hear, to see the things 
that he desires for us in our relationship with him. So I'm going to ask you if you would pray with me this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you today thanking you that, that we can have this relationship with you. And I pray, Father, if, that there's, if there's anyone in this room that, that is confused by this, who has really no idea what this means, that today you begin to pull back the blinders and give clarity of understanding. And Father, I pray that they'd be willing to step out in faith and enter into that kind of relationship. I pray for those who've been in the faith for a long, long time, who've gotten to be kind of stagnant, Father. I pray that you'd energize us and help us to to desire an even deeper relationship with you, Father. So use us today, Father, as we end this year, launch us into 2015, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, there's a couple questions that I think I need to ask and answer um, before we get into evaluating our relationship with Jesus. Number one is, is a relationship with Jesus Christ even possible? I, I remember thinking of that when I was in high school, like, how do you have a relationship with an invisible God that you can't see, you, you, can't, you can't touch, you can't hear his voice audibly like you can human beings? I mean, how do you even have a relationship with God? Well, it's not as difficult as you think because we actually have relationships with a lot of things that are different than us. For example, um, there have been a number of people in our church over the past couple months who've had to put their dogs to sleep. And I've listened to the stories of how they love their dog, and their dog was like a part of their family. I had an elderly man come to me one morning and said that they had to put their little, their little dog um, down. And he and his wife went to the vet, and they gave the, the dog the shots, and the dog died in their arms, and he's crying as he's telling me the story. This dog became part of their lives. And we have three dogs in our house, and dogs are very different than humans. And yet there's a, there's a, a way we can relate to each other. And if you've got a horse or uh, maybe a cat, I, I don't know if fish do this, but, but a lot of pets you can really bond with and, and connect with. And, and though they're animals and we're humans, there's a bond there uh, and, a, and a trust and a loyalty. So when we think of God, God's eternal being and we're human, there's a, there's a big gap there. But here's the difference. And this is even better than us and our dogs. We are made in God's image. We are made to have a relationship with him. We can do things no other thing in creation can do. We can create with originality. We can communicate. We can write poetry. We can express ourselves in ways that, that animals can't even do that. And we are made that way because of a God who made us that way and a God who can relate to us that way. So we can have a relationship with God because God designed it for us. And also, Jesus himself said we can have a relationship. In John 17, verse 3, Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. God wants to have a relationship with us. He wants us to know him. And eternal life is the fruit of that. We often think, and I think mistakenly, that eternal life means we get to live forever. And while that's part of it, eternal life is more about a quality of life. It's a life lived out to a greater depth. Uh, eternal life isn't something like a, a ticket. Like you become a Christian, you get your eternal life ticket, and when you die, you show your ticket to the guy at the, at the ride station, and then you get to go on this roller coaster called eternal life in heaven, and wow, that's going to be really fun when I get there. So I've got my ticket, and when I die, then I have eternal life. No, eternal life is now. And as soon as you surrender, these kids that surrender to Jesus Christ, they got their tickets punched today. They're on the ride right now. You get to ride with Jesus. Now, that's eternal life. It's a quality of life, not just a duration of life. What is a relationship with Jesus like? 
What is it like? Well, the Greek word in that verse, to know the Father and know the Son, is different than, than what we think of know. We think of know as having knowledge about, gaining information. So we may know historical figures like Abraham Lincoln or Martin um, Luther King Jr., or we can know people that are even alive today that, that are distant, that we've never met. You can know about Taylor Swift, or you can know about Peyton Manning, but that's not a relationship with that person. Uh, biblically, the word to know means to have an intimate experience with. So to know someone isn't just to know about someone. It's not about information. I, I think it boils down to another word, communication. A relationship is based on communication. And if you can communicate back and forth, you can have a relationship. When you have someone that you've never met before, like an athlete, actor, person of history, all the, all the information you get is, is glean, but there's no communication with that person. So there's no relationship. You may say, well, I know who Peyton Manning is. I just don't know Peyton Manning. We've never talked. He's never heard my voice. We've never communicated. He, doesn't fa- he denied me on Facebook. He won't be my friend, you know. <laughs> So I can't have a relationship with him. But when you can communicate, you can have a relationship. Now, again, you may say, well, Pastor, but how do you, how do you communicate with this invisible God? I, I can't see and hear his voice. There's ways you can communicate with God through prayer, through reading Scripture, and through the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Uh, when I grew up, we used to have these things called pen pals. You'd have a friend that might live in another part of the country, another part of the world, and you'd write letters back and forth, and you'd get to know this person. You, you got to have a relationship with this person through that form of communication. I don't think people do pen pals today. Now, they, now Facebook and Instagram and even texting allows us to get to know people. People go on dating sites, and they may see a picture, but long before they hear a voice, they're sending notes back and forth. They're typing, going back and forth. And you know what? A relationship starts to develop through what? Communication. You've already read the information, you know, you know he's six foot one, he's 178 pounds. He's, you get the information, and she's this and that. That's all information. But when you start sending messages, that's communication. That's the heart of a relationship with the Lord. It's communication. And we, we should know that because any great relationship is based on communication. The Apostle Paul knew about God. But when he became... A Christian, when he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ, he went on this great journey, and toward the end of his life, his hunger was this. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, I want to know Christ. I want to experience a deeper depth of intimacy. And that's my hope for you today, that you will want to know Christ even greater. So I want to take you through a journey from kind of before you become a Christian until... um, until you've been a Christian for a long time, kind of the whole panorama, and look at five stages of a relationship with Jesus. And hopefully, we're progressing through those stages. They might not all happen distinctly like I'm going to lay them out, but I think for most of us, we, we sort of flow in that direction. So number one, the, the first place we begin is we admire Jesus as a great man. We admire him as a great man. In the book of Acts, the 10th chapter, Paul, is, or excuse me, Peter is describing Jesus to a man named Cornelius who's not yet surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. And uh, he says this, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and he went around doing good and healing all those who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. People look at Jesus and say, Jesus did such good things. I don't know if there's ever lived a better man than Jesus. He was such a great man. 
And people all around the world still today look at Jesus as someone who's probably the greatest of, of all men that have ever lived. Whether they ascribe deity to him, call him God, they at least say there's something about Jesus that's different. And Jesus continues to grow in popularity. In the 1960s, in an interview in 1966, one of the singers in the Beatles, John Lennon, said that the Beatles had become more popular than Jesus Christ. He said, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right and I'll be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus Christ now. Really? Some of you kids are going, Dad, who's John Lennon? (laughs) Right? But you don't have to ask who Jesus is. All around the world, maybe not so much in the United States, but in Africa, South America, in China, places all around the globe. The name of Jesus is growing more and more popular. Two-thirds of the world's religions place a high priority on Jesus as a significant person within their system. People are attracted to Jesus. People are drawn to him. When he lived this, on this earth, he had this irresistible presence. He had uncanny wisdom. He had complete integrity, boundless compassion, unyielding commitment to the principles and the path in which he was living his life. No one has exhibited uh, such a complete um, strength of character as Jesus. You might find someone who's, who's great in one of those areas or a couple of those areas, but Jesus, in every single area of life, exhibited uh, such the, the, the high marks of human standards. There's no one quite like Jesus. His name is sacred. I mean, I, I met a man this morning. He introduced himself to me. He says, my name is Ezra. And I said, were you named after that guy in the Bible? He said, yep, my parents named me after a man of the Bible. A lot of parents will do that. They'll name their their daughters Mary or Elizabeth or their sons Peter and John or Matthew. I've never met anyone who was named Jesus. Parents recognize the fact. I could name my child after a, a biblical person, but not the Son of God. There's only one Jesus. And so we're gonna leave that name as sacred. You ever wonder why when people get angry, they don't, they don't curse the name of Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad. They curse the name of Jesus. Because they recognize if you're going to get angry and you're going to point a finger at God, that's the name you're going to use because there's no other name above that name, the name of Jesus. It is sacred. And his life is central to human history. We have our calendar um, based. The Gregorian calendar is based on, on B.C., which is everything that happened before who? Before Christ. And then we have A.D., and that's a, from Latin, Anno Domini, which means in the year of who? Our Lord. The calendar hinges on one man, Jesus. Now, I was watching a movie the other day at the theater, and it had uh, B.C.E. They're trying, to, they're trying to change calendar and the letterings because they recognize not everyone likes Jesus. So they're putting B.C.E., which means before the common era. And then everything, instead of A.D., we now live not in A.D., but the common era. So there's a common era and before the common era. I don't think it's going to stick because there's something about Jesus that we recognize all history pivots on the person of Jesus. Even unbelievers take note of that. H.G. Wells, who was a prolific English writer, also an atheist, says this, I'm an historian. I'm not a believer. 
But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. And maybe your person today says, I I don't understand all this Christianity stuff. I don't understand, Pastor, what you're talking about, relationship with Jesus, but I do know this. There is something about Jesus that intrigues me. He was unlike any other person. And if that's the reason you're here today, I think that's a great start. That's a good place to start. But let's build on that. Let's move to the second level. I heed him as a wise teacher. I heed him as a wise teacher. I've had many teachers in my life impact me. Mrs. Anderson, who was the kindergarten teacher, who taught me to love music and taught me the alphabet and taught me to sit and be still. You know, Mrs. Anderson was a great teacher. Um, I remember Mr. Roeder. He was a junior high teacher, had polio in one of his legs, so he, was, he walked around like a pirate. And uh, Mr. Roeder loved science and would make it come alive for us. I remember... Um, Mr. Scalisi, who was the, the junior high PE teacher, a very strict man, Italian background, but he taught us to respect one another. He taught us to respect our bodies. And then there was Mr. North, who made history come alive as he taught about things of the past. Great teachers impact your life. You probably had teachers that you can look back and say, man, that teacher really, really impacted me in a great way. Nobody impacted um, people as much as Jesus when Jesus gave one of the most profound teachings ever recorded, the Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew's, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, at the very end of that sermon, when Jesus stops speaking, Matthew makes this note. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Something about Jesus and the way he taught or the content of his teaching made people say, he's different. I learn when he teaches. I don't learn when those other guys teach as much, but when Jesus does, wow. And for me, Jesus has taught me so much. Here's here's some reasons why I think Jesus is such a powerful teacher. Uh, First of all, he makes makes us think. Jesus makes us think. He challenges our assumptions about things. He challenges our, our patterns of behavior. When Jesus uh, was ministering, he'd say, well, you heard it said... And people are like, yeah, yeah, that's how everyone says it is. But I tell you this. I tell you this. You've had it wrong all these years. They've taught you wrong. Here's what I tell you. He, he challenged their assumptions. They thought they could look down on children and women and, and non-Jews and tax collectors and prostitutes. And Jesus says, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. They're made in God's image too. He challenged them. He, he challenged their thinking in so many areas, challenge their rituals they practicing. Why do you do that? Why do you keep the Sabbath like that? Why do you wash your hands and make such a big deal about that? Why, why? Think about it. Why do you fast? Why do you pray? Why do you, why do you give the way you do? Think about what you're doing. Jesus made people think. Oftentimes, when people came to Jesus and asked him a question, Jesus would just turn it back over. How do, I get, how, how do I get eternal life? Well, what do you think? What do you think when you read the scriptures? What does it say to you? Or, uh, or hey, shouldn't, shouldn't you be paying taxes to Caesar? Well, pull a coin out of your pocket. Whose picture's on that? You know, Jesus, Jesus made people think. I, Christianity is a thinking religion. People sometimes say that Christians are kind of mindless, um, kind, you know, kind of mindless zombies walking through life, just, you know, absorbing things and regurgitating things pastors have said. But honestly, Jesus really makes you think 
about what you believe and why you believe and, and what you do and why you do what you do. Jesus also helps us understand. Helps us understand. You know, there's a lot of things in life we don't understand. When I'm filling out forms at an emergency room or some medical place, I get all these pages. There's usually a couple pages in there that say, I have no clue what this says. But I think I'm just going to sign it, and hopefully my bank account doesn't get drained. But I'm going to sign it. You get, you, if you ever sign a mortgage or refinancing, you get a whole packet of paper, sign this, sign this, sign this. And, you know, I don't want to know it all. I just don't understand it all. So I just tell the person, um, what does this say? What, what am I risking here by signing this? You please tell me because it doesn't make sense to me. Sometimes it's written in legalese kind of stuff, whereas, therefore, henceforth, I, I'm lost. Just make it clear. There was a little girl in Idaho. She was um, in a science fair contest. She won the contest because she went around to people asking if they would sign a petition to ban a substance called dihydrogen monoxide because it's the cause of excessive vomiting and sweating. It's a major component of acid rain. It can burn you in a gaseous state. Um, Accidental inhalation can kill you. It contributes to erosion. They've even found this this substance in the tumors of cancer patients. 86% of the people um, signed that they would want this substance banned. Uh, there's 12% says, you know, I, I need a little more time to think about it. And 2% says, no, we're not going to sign that. Dihydrogen monoxide, you know what that is? It's water. It's water. There's, there's, we get so confused in life that we need sometimes people just to make it clear. Just make it simple. That's one of my desires even as a, as a pastor. The Bible's not that complicated. You know, let's put it, let's make things simple. I think that's why God made me a children's pastor first. Because if you can communicate to children... Um, many of us adults, we wouldn't want to admit it, but, but we, we're about at a childlike stage in our learning about God. So if we can put it on the shelf, on the bottom, bottom shelf, and I think that's what Jesus does constantly, puts, puts the food on the bottom shelf so everyone can reach it. It's not way up there, it's, it's right here. Jesus helps us to understand. And Jesus moves us to action. When Jesus taught, people responded. Fishermen dropped their nets and followed him. Women who were prostitutes says, I'm not going to do that anymore. Tax collector says, I'm not going to take money. I'm going to start giving money. And and Jesus causes us to change the whole direction in our lives. And so if you meet a good teacher in your life, they'll make you think. And a very good teacher, well, a very good teacher will help you to understand. But the very best teachers, the great teachers, move you to action to where your life actually changes. If you're someone that's here today saying, I want to learn from Jesus, listen, heed what he says. Apply it to your life. And I'll tell you this, your life will get better when you do what Jesus says. But it doesn't, it shouldn't stop there. Jesus wants us to go further in our relationship with him to the point where we, we receive him as a loving savior. Jesus didn't come simply to be a good man. Jesus didn't come to be simply a good teacher. He came to be savior. As we've learned the last couple of weeks, we've talked about um, the scripture. Jesus came to save us from our sins. In the 1970s, a form of um, therapy became very popular called trans, um, transact- transactional analysis. And, and what it was, was there's a um, whole concept of each of us has, we're at a state of either being the parent, the child, or the adult. And it's kind of complicated, but there was a phrase that became popular in transactional analysis called, um, I'm okay, you're okay. 
And some of you might remember that. I remember hearing that. I didn't know what it was about, but I'm okay, you're okay. Well, then, then a T-shirt came out in Christian bookstores. It showed the three crosses on the hill of Calvary, and there's two thieves, and there's Jesus in the middle, and the thieves are talking to each other, and one looks to the other and says, if you're okay, and I'm okay, why is he here? Which is really the truth. The, the truth is, you're not okay, and I'm not okay, and that's why Jesus went to the cross. We have an issue called sin. And Jesus came to save us from our sins. And I'd encourage you to go back, listen online to the messages from the past couple weeks because we talked very extensively about Jesus being the Lamb of God who died for the sins of the world. Jesus came to be our Savior. I want to read to you what Paul wrote to a young man named Titus in, uh, in the third chapter of his letter. He says, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Jesus saved us, not because of anything we've done, but because of what he's done. You will never be saved by good works. You'll never be saved by going to church, giving offerings, saying prayers. You're not saved by what you do. You're saved by what he did for us. We are, we are saved because of his mercy and his grace. Mercy means we don't get what we deserve. We deserve punishment. We deserve eternal separation from God. God says, I will not give that to you. I will give you mercy. Instead, I'll take that penalty away from you and give it to Christ. So he gives us mercy. We don't get what we deserve. But grace is different than mercy. Grace means you get something you didn't earn. Not only do we not get the punishment, we get the bonus of eternal life. We get to live with God forever in heaven. We get all the riches of God's eternal life. We get that given to us as a gift of grace. And all that is accomplished through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Jesus came to be our Savior. And the Bible says that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you've been in church for many years, I just want to ask you, have you called on the name of the Lord? It's not just a head belief that you believe he died on the cross for your sins, was raised from the dead. It's personally calling on him as your savior, savior, saying, Jesus, I believe you died for my sins. I believe you were raised to life so that I may live again. I call on you for your salvation. He wants to be savior, but he wants to, to go even further than being just savior. He wants us to submit to him as our supreme Lord. Many people have an opinion of Jesus, but really there's only one opinion that matters, and that is the opinion of the Heavenly Father. And it's not just his opinion, it's his declaration. In Philippians chapter 2, we have this great statement about Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's Jesus, the Savior. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord. The word Lord is a powerful word. It means master. It means ruler. It's, it's the one in charge. It's the boss of my life. It's, it's the, the one who controls the reins of my life. And it's the one who reigns 
over my life. Jesus is Lord. It's the most dominant word used of Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus is called Savior. Jesus is called Teacher. But more often than not, the people that knew Jesus well called him Lord. Now, when the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew to Greek um, at the time of Christ, uh, so the Roman population could understand it, the word for Yahweh in the Old Testament, when it was translated into the Greek, was translated into the word Lord. And that word Lord is the word applied to Jesus. And what that means is Jesus is Lord, Yahweh, God of the Old Testament. Now, there are some, some religions that will say, like Jehovah Witnesses, no, no, Jesus isn't God. But, but it's very clear in Scripture, Jesus is called Lord. And that word Lord could mean um, sir. It could mean like a title. When you, when you talk to someone, you say sir. Um, and, and, and I think uh, in, in Old English, you'll talk, talk to someone being your Lord. So there is a sense that there is a, just a proper use of that word. But most of the time when it's used in Scripture, it doesn't mean a courteous title. It means sovereign ruler, the one who's in charge, the one that I submit to, that kind of a Lord. Jesus is Lord. Now, many times Christians will say, well, I want Jesus to be my Savior. I, I don't know about this Lordship thing. But honestly, you can't have one without the other. Jesus didn't just come to save us from our sins. He, he came to save us from ourselves. He wants our lives to count for him. That's why he comes to live inside of us. If all Jesus cared about was that we would um, go to heaven, then it would be better that we baptize someone and, and keep them under until they die because they get to go to be with God and it's, it's all good. But if God says, no, no, I want you to stay on earth for a while because I want you to be my instrument. I want you to be like the hands and the feet and the voice of Christ on this earth. And in order to do that, I need to come inside you through the Holy Spirit and live through you. And when we surrender to him, we listen to the voice and the promptings of the Holy Spirit. When we learn to say yes to God, that's why our mission is to help more people more often say yes because um, being baptized is one moment in time. Saying yes to God is a daily exercise of submission to his lordship. And, and honestly, we don't do well when we're in control of our own lives. We screw it up. We get in a lot of trouble. We make bad mistakes. We want him to be lord of our lives, don't we? Don't we want Jesus to take control? The reason I have the sin issue is because I messed it up the first time. So Jesus said, okay, I'm going to erase it. But this time, you move off the driver's seat. Let me take control. And let's see where I take this life going forward. And when you do that, it's beautiful. When you let Jesus be Lord of your life, it's not like he's a control freak. He wants to do what's good and best in your life, what you're not able to do for yourself. Jesus wants to be Lord. Now, in... Um, in the Honduras, there's a, a friend of mine who was a missionary. In fact, some of you know a little guy named Levi on our staff. He and his family were missionaries, and his dad and I went to college together. And one time, he, his dad was sharing that they have a practice on New Year's Eve in Honduras called uh, Hombres Diejos. I, I hope I'm saying that right. But what they do is they take a, a scarecrow-like figure, and uh, they stuff it full of fireworks. And then on New Year's Eve, they light him up. And this guy, you can talk about going out with the bang. He goes out with the bang. And, and, and it's, it's a symbolic gesture of, you know, the, the, the old man of 2014, he's over. It's done. A new day begins. And I think in Christianity, we have a, a ritual like that, but we don't blow people up. We just dunk them. 
Because, it, because we bury the old person. So it symbolically states that you begin a new life. It's a fresh start. You get to live for the Lord now. I love the fact that as believers, we can live anew under the power and control of the Lord. When I was in high school and I first began to understand that concept, I, I had some friends and they started to, to follow Jesus as Lord. One of them was a man named Mark, and I've mentioned this uh, before in a sermon, but Mark was a, grew up in the Catholic Church and was used to all the rituals and kind of mindless repetition. And somehow this concept of Jesus as Lord really grabbed a hold of him. He began to really seriously follow Jesus. And one day his dad told him, he said, Mark, it's okay to have God in your life. You just can't, can't let him run your life. <laughs> and Mark said, Dad, that's what I want to do. That's what I need to do. I want Jesus to lead my life because I don't do such a good job with it. Make Jesus Lord of your life. It's the best decision you'll ever make. But there's another step beyond that. And it's this, to walk with him as your close friend. To walk with Jesus as a close friend. You know, some of you uh, may, may understand Jesus as Lord, but you've not moved to that friendship state. But I want you to know Jesus wants to have a friendship with you. He, he wants you to know him intimately. And you know, all of us have people in our lives that are acquaintances. And then we have that um, little small group of people. Maybe it's, maybe it's a handful of people that we call friends. And they're called friends because of certain qualities about them. There's something about our relationship with that person that makes us call them friend. It's a, it's a term of endearment when you say, that's my friend. That's my friend. Uh, we've got a special kind of a relationship. In John 15, 15, the final night of Jesus' um, life on earth, he said to his disciples, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. After three years with these disciples, he's gathered around a table with them and says, you guys are my friends. You know, even Judas, he called a friend. When Judas came that, later that night to betray Jesus, he brought um, the Roman guards in. He walked over to Jesus, gave Jesus a kiss on the cheek. And you know what Jesus said to Judas? Friend, do what you came for. He didn't call him enemy. Even though Judas had betrayed Jesus, Jesus says, to me, I desired friendship. Jesus wants to be a friend to you. The Bible says in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus is the one knocking on the door of your heart saying, Would you let me in? I desire friendship with you. Now, that's pretty amazing. It would kind of be like a, a dignitary coming to your house, standing on the outside, knocking on your door, and you say, No, no, don't, they don't have time for you. You know, Mr. Obama, not really interested today. Mr. Manning, I, I'm really busy, don't have time for you. I mean, here's Jesus knocking on the door saying, I, want, I would like to come in and eat with you and you with me and develop a friendship. Jesus pursues that, and it's up to us to respond to it, just open it up. He wants that relationship. He wants the friendship with you. And like a good shepherd, Jesus says, I know my sheep. He knows everything about us. He doesn't walk away when we fall or have a bad day. When, when other people around us may critique us, Jesus is there to stand by us. Jesus was called a friend of sinners. That was a, a name, a nickname, actually a, a term of derision for Jesus. I, he likes sinners, and Jesus said, I sure do. I sure do. I'm a friend of them. I, I take that as a compliment. 
Jesus is there when you need him. It's been said of the friends in your life, friends walk in when others walk out. And there are times in your life when you look around and you go, you know what, my lowest time, when everyone else kind of left me, I found out who my true friends were. When, when we went through the, you know, it may be something in your life, when we went through the divorce, or when I went through my moral failure, that's when I found out who my real, real friends were. Jesus is there to stand by us. I love how the Apostle Paul um, tells a story that at one of his defenses, when he was being charged and going to prison and all this, he said, at my last defense, everyone abandoned me except Jesus Christ stood at my side. Now, I don't think Jesus physically stood at his side. I think he just knew the Lord was with me all through that. When everyone else left me, when I thought I was all alone, Jesus says, I'm still there. I promised you I would never leave you or forsake you. Jesus is a friend that the book of Proverbs says sticks closer than a brother. And as a friend, he opens his heart to us. Greater love has no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Jesus loves us. We are his friends. I remember in high school when I first began to have this concept that Jesus wanted to be my friend to walk with me, I I did something kind of crazy. I I imagined Jesus being in school with me, sitting in the classroom with me, walking hallways with me. And you know what I found myself doing through the day? Talking with Jesus constantly. I'm bouncing ideas off Jesus. I found myself not telling bad jokes. I find myself um, not looking at girls in a suspicious way. I find myself being kinder than I normally would because my, my friend was with me. There are times when I went off to college when I felt like I was all alone. I didn't know anybody there, but my friend stood by my side. I, I don't know how to describe this to you if you've never been there, but Jesus truly is a friend that walks with you. I can, I can honestly say that, that he is the closest friend in my life. He, he loves me. He knows me. He stands with me. Jesus is, is a friend. Some of you know an old song. We don't sing it in churches anymore, I don't think, but you, every once in a while you hear it at a funeral. But I love a line in the song. It's called In the Garden, and it says, And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. That's what I long for you, to know a Jesus that walks with you and talks with you. Because one day, your spouse will probably depart. One day, the kids will leave your home. One day, you'll retire from your job. But Jesus will be the faithful, constant friend through every situation you go through in life. Yesterday, I had the privilege of performing a a wedding for a couple down in Beulah. And I love weddings because, really, a wedding is a statement of we want to take the relationship to the next level. We want to go deeper. I'm committed to you. I'm committed to knowing you more. I'm committing to opening myself up to you more, and I want it to be a lifelong relationship. Well, I think a relationship with Jesus requires commitment too. It requires a commitment of three very critical things. Number one is time. In order to grow in your relationship with Jesus, it's going to take time. It's not an instantaneous thing. It takes a course of many years of going to church and studying the Bible and, and sharing memories together and experiencing, going through crises and relying on them, testing your faith. All that's going to go on over the course of time. It takes time to develop relationships. Just look at your human relationships. They take time. So invest time in the relationship. It will not be microwaved. Secondly, it takes talk, conversation. You will not get to know Jesus without talking with him. And talking with him takes uh, very simply, the form of, of me talking to God and me listening to the Lord. 
And so prayer is very central to that. Reading the Bible, very important part of that. When I read the scriptures, I hear God's voice speaking through me. I understand the heart of God. When I hear the Holy Spirit prompting things in my heart that line up with scripture, I hear the Lord's voice. But God hears my voice as I vocalize to him what's going on inside of me. So both of that is required. Prayer and time in God's word. If there's one discipline that I would urge you to have if you don't already, starting 2015, take a few minutes every morning or take a few minutes in the middle of the day. Take, take a little niche of time and say, do you know what? For this period of time, I'm going to read some scripture and I'm going to open my heart to God and I'm going to seek to hear from him. And when you do that, it, it can transform your life. Your relationship grows deeper and deeper and deeper. And the third commitment is trust. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Jesus says, um, here, here's a test. You are truly my friends if you do what I command. Our trust is shown by doing what Jesus commands, by doing the things that he tells us. Not because Jesus just wants control. It's because Jesus, I know what's best for you. I know what you truly need in life, and I want to give it to you. But you've got to trust me in this. Trust me in your marriage. Trust me in your business. Trust me in... Um, in your um, finances. Trust me in all of these matters. Do what I say. Trust me. And you'll grow deeper. You'll find him to be the faithful God, the faithful Lord, faithful wise teacher that he's intended to be in your life. I was reading about a little girl. She was talking to her grandmother. And the grandmother began to share about all the things she used to do when she was a little girl. She used to pick raspberries by the road, used to go skating um, on the frozen pond, used to have a little pony that was her own. And the little girl got so excited and wide-eyed. And she says, Grandma, I wish I, I wish I'd gotten to know you a lot sooner. <laughs> and, you know, I think a lot of us feel that way about Jesus. You come to church, you hear about how wonderful of a Savior he is. And some of you, the age of your life, say, you know what? I wish I could go back to when I was in high school or back to when my parents tried to teach me this. And I brushed it off. Or back when I heard the pastor talk about this, and I didn't think it was that critical, I wish I could go back so I could know Jesus like I want to know him today. And you can't. You can't go backwards. You can't redo the past. But here's what you can do. Today, decide, okay, Jesus, I want to know you more. I want to go deeper with you. And as we start this new year, I'm going to put myself out there for you. I want to grow in my relationship with you. I'm going to commit the time and the talk and the trust so I can grow and enjoy this sweet relationship. Because when you get to the end of your life and you're getting ready to go into heaven, you're going to get ready to go to meet Jesus. Wouldn't it be beautiful to transition from this life, this great friendship with Jesus, to all of a sudden the door opening, and you know, you're just how I always pictured you. And if we as a church can help you on the journey, we want to. I'm going to close in prayer and we're going to launch out from here and get ready for 2015. But if you need to surrender to Jesus today, I'm going to wait up here to talk with you, to pray with you. And maybe you desire, like those kids that say, you know what, Pastor, going into 2015, I want to be fully surrendered to Jesus. Can you baptize me today? We'll do that during the next service for you. We want you to grow. There's one thing we can leave you with thinking about in the end of this year is Jesus wants a growing relationship with you. So let's pray. Father, thank you that you desire that. Thank you that you sent Jesus not only to save us, but to love us and to walk with us. And Jesus, I thank you that there's nothing as fulfilling as a relationship with you. 
And I pray, Father, for my brothers and sisters here that they would experience that. That wherever they are in their relationship with you, Father, they would take the next step to go deeper. So that one day, Father, they can get to that place where they know Jesus as the most blessed, intimate friend they've ever known. That's my prayer for them, Father. Bless them now as we leave. Lord, as we enter 2015, may this year be more surrendered to you than any other year of our lives to this point. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. God. Thanks for listening to today's message. Be sure to join us again next time.